Welcome to the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast. This ain't your grandma's podcast. Well, hello there. It's your host, Aaron Batty, on the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast. Episode 29, the big 2-9, 30 will be soon. We're going to have to do a celebration. In this episode, we're going to be talking about a very popular subject right now, the new heavens and the new earth. Also, the refurbished earth, which those go hand in hand um, often in, in discussions of this subject. I don't know what has made this a popular subject lately, but it has. So I think it's relevant to a relevant podcast. Let's talk about it. We're going to be doing a deep dive. This I would call this probably a meteor subject matter. So if you consider yourself to be a Baby in Christ, we say sometimes you need some milk. This isn't exactly milk. Uh, this is going to be some meat. So listener beware if you were expecting some type of basic how to fight spiritual warfare. This isn't exactly quite that. I'll get into more what we mean by the new heavens and new earth, where that phrase comes from, popular passages that are used in explaining this, um, popular passages where this phrase occurs, and what the refurbished earth position is. Maybe you've never heard that before. By the end of this, you should understand what people mean when they use that phrase. Also, what is the traditional view in contrast to that? We'll find out. Before we do, let's hear a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by PDA Therapy. Do you have lots of friends getting engaged? I know I do. It's just getting to be a little bit too much. <laughs> Does some of them make long, affectionate posts on social media that make you have to lay your head in the toilet bowl? I've been there a lot. This is a risk to your health, emotionally and physically. Toilet bowls can get pretty gross. <laughs> so there are cutting-edge studies coming out that social media users are experiencing tr- post-traumatic stress disorder from repeated traumatic exposure to mushy-gushy word vomit. I know how you feel. I've experienced this. PTSD related to public displays of affection never really go away. You just learn to cope with it over time and with help. And speaking of that, I am an unofficially unlicensed PDA therapist, and I'm offering you my services free of charge for only $5.99 per session. Don't let your friends make you sick any longer. Learn how to cope. Reach out to my hotline by visiting pdarecovery.fakenews.com to get immediate help, and I promise to respond to your urgent help request within 72 hours. This is a fake ad. PDA is a real problem, though. Here we are, the main dish. As I said in the preview to this episode, we're going to be talking about the refurbished earth, whether or not we will be living on a renovated earth whenever Jesus comes back again to destroy this old earth that we live on now and prepares us for the eternal existence. Okay, so what I'm going to do in this episode is I'm going to take you through basically the the outline being an article that I just published on 5MinuteBibleStudy.com last week, and it was called The Refurbished Earth, Four Obstacles to Overcome. Now don't worry, because in this episode, I'm not just going to be rehashing material that I've written and already published online. Uh, In fact, I published an article the week prior to that one, I believe it was, What is New About the New Heavens and New Earth? So maybe you've read both of those articles and you're thinking, well, I don't want to listen to this podcast because it'll just be the same thing. And while there will be quite a bit of overlap, there will be also some new information as well. 
And new information being um, that article about the four obstacles to overcome for the refurbished earth position. What I did in that is I addressed each of the major chapters in the Bible that are appealed to by those who hold this viewpoint. And I addressed major obstacles within each one of those chapters and interpreting it. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you basically a very short exposition, not really an exposition, that would be a little elaborate, a little short interpretation, we'll call it that, as to what I believe that verse is actually saying. That will include Romans 8, 2 Peter 3, Revelation 21, and Isaiah 65 to 66. Again, it'll be short, maybe a few minutes apiece, some longer than others. All in all, I don't know how long, as I'm talking here, how long this episode is going to last. You will, obviously, when you see the timestamp for this episode, but I'm just going to talk because we'll get all this out in one episode. This is kind of a big topic, and um, I'm going to try not to spread it into like a part one, part two, so you may get some extra today. Now, when it comes to talking about the refurbished earth, uh, maybe perhaps you are not familiar with what that is, what that means. So if you haven't picked up from just a little bit of clues that I've given you so far, basically there are people that believe when this earth is destroyed, it's not going to be completely destroyed. Some base element of it is going to be uh, left over. God's going to basically melt away and purify the earth by fire as opposed to completely annihilate it with fire. Appealing to 2 Peter 3 there. And so whenever he does that, instead of completely annihilating it, he will again purify it, and then from what is left over, God will recreate the earth, uh, again, not from scratch, but he will take that basic element that's left, recreate the earth into a new heavens and a new earth. And it will be basically like the Garden of Eden. We'll come full circle from where we started. We'll basically be living in the Garden of Eden as we were, quote-unquote, intended to, and uh, that will be where we'll dwell, and somehow God will dwell with us on that earth. And, and as far as that goes, there are different. There are very many different interpretations as to exactly what happens there. Some interpretations I've heard leave the impression that God will be in heaven and we will be on earth. Um, some leave the impression that the Father and the Son will be in heaven and the Holy Spirit will dwell with His people on the earth. Uh, some people believe that Jesus Christ will be dwelling on the earth, on His throne, uh, on that refurbished earth. It just depends on the person you're talking to. So I'm not going to put it out there as if um, you know any one of those is the normative interpretation, but that's generally how it goes. In, a, in opposition to that, there is the it's typically called the traditional view, and that's what I hold to. It's the idea that Jesus is going to come back in the clouds, like Thessalonians says. Uh, he's going to annihilate the earth, like Peter says, and he's going to take the faithful back to heaven to dwell with God in heaven for all of eternity, like Jesus says in John 14, and John says in Revelation 21, he alludes to that, and other places throughout Scripture. I'm just giving you a couple of examples there. Okay, so that's called the more or less traditional view, and um, I'm just being upfront and transparent. I believe that is the true position of the Word of God, and that's the one I'm going to be advocating for throughout this podcast episode. Um, If you are listening to this and you think, well, what's what's the relevance of this? Why talk about this? These things that we're talking about, the new heavens and new earth, is a phrase that comes from Scripture. It obviously has some meaning. It obviously is something that God thought was important because He included it in His divine revelation, and God doesn't waste ink or space or breath. And so it's something that He obviously wants us to know. I don't think it's um, 
philosophical and um, just aimless pursuits to try to figure out what this means or to study these things. If God didn't want us to study them, He wouldn't have included it in His revelation. And as there is with all truth in Scripture, it all has a true meaning, so we're seeking to find that true meaning. Um, Well, anyways, as I've said before, there are four main passages where the refurbished earth position goes to get its interpretation of the end times, what happens to this earth. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 23 would be one very important passage to the position. 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 13 is another major passage to the position. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 2, in that chapter, really, verses 1 and 2 are the only ones typically that I've seen referred to. And then Isaiah 65 and 66, I personally have not seen very many people go to Isaiah 65 and 66 to argue the position of a refurbished earth, and if they did, it would basically be to just grab the phrase, new heavens and new earth, that's mentioned in chapter 65 and 17, and I think it's chapter 66 and verse 22, if I'm not mistaken. They'll just grab that phrase and then be gone in order to, you know, then jump into Peter and Romans and John's revelation to try to bear out the position. Well, um, I'm kind of giving ahead of myself here of where, where I want to go, but I think it's very important that we start with Isaiah 65 and 66 if we were to understand what this phrase means, what meaning it has, because what the other authors will do, Peter and John, they will pick up this phrase from Isaiah. It obviously had some root meaning back there when Isaiah used it, and they'll take that phrase and use it as Isaiah does. They might elaborate on that some more, um, but it, they're going to be using it the phrase that Isaiah used because he's the one that the Holy Spirit kicked things off with. Okay, that's just uh, getting ahead of myself, like I said, a little bit. What I'd like to do now is go through these four obstacles in these four passages that I just mentioned. These are obstacles to interpreting a refurbished earth position from the four main passages that are commonly alluded to. Now, what I'd like to do first is I'd like to read every single place where the new heavens and new earth phrasing occurs in Scripture. And I like to do that because it doesn't take long. There's only four verses of Scripture where that phrase is actually used. The first one is in Isaiah 65, verse 17. It says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. In chapter 66 and verse 22, it says, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. In 2 Peter 3, verse 13, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And in Revelation 21, verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. So those are the four places. Um, You will notice that Romans 8 does not actually use the phrase. Rather, Romans 8 talks about the creation being um, looking forward to a a certain glory in the future, and that's the the language that's used there, creation. Um, Anyway, now we'll start with Revelation 21. I think this is a good place to start. Many people will go here, and you'll notice there is uh, more phrasing than in verse 1 that's pertinent as those who hold this position will draw off of verse 1 and verse 2 particularly. Let me read it again. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for this first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. 
Verse 2 says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Um, I've talked to several people who will latch onto that phrase in verse 2, that it was coming down out of heaven from God, this new universe. And they will emphasize that to basically prove that this is a new earth, literally coming from heaven, that God has created after the old one has been renovated. Um, there's a big obstacle right in the face here. And I was listening to a sermon by Brother Ed Daniel yesterday. He was actually preaching on Revelation. And he said this, and I agree with this, um, with a small caveat, which I talked to him about, and he, he said he also agreed. He was talking about Revelation 16. And what his point was in Revelation 16 is you can't come to Scripture that uses highly figurative, highly symbolic language, and then all of a sudden just arbitrarily pick and choose what phrases in that Scripture are then literal, and just pick certain phrases and translate them, or I guess I should say interpret them literally to your whims and fancy. With the caveat, I would add to that, and you could go back to my study on figurative language just a couple of episodes ago where we talked about Wayne Jackson's tips on interpreting figurative language. I would agree with that 100% with the caveat, unless there is very good reason to interpret a phrase or something there literally and use those rules of interpretation that we went over in that, in that podcast episode. Well, that's what you run up against in Revelation 21. People will translate the phrase, or not translate, I keep saying that, they will interpret the phrase new heavens and new earth literally, that it's coming out of heaven from God literally. Um, they'll, they'll translate all that literally, but then almost everything in the surrounding context, um, those same people from both sides of the aisle, from both positions, the traditional view and the refurbished earth view, both agree that mostly everything else in the passage is figurative. And let me run through this list for you. It's in my article, and I'll just uh, run through it real quick with you so you can see how overwhelming most everything else in the chapter is figurative or symbolic. Notice the New Jerusalem is not a literal city, but it's symbolic of God's people. And you'll pick up on that quickly in verse 2, verse 9, and verse 10, that the city is not an actual city, but it's symbolic of God's people. God's people are not literally a bride or the wife of the Lamb, in verses 2 and 9, the Lamb of God is not literally a lamb. God's not literally wiping tears from people's literal eyes. God's name isn't literally the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, the Alpha and the Omega. That's a symbol. The fountain with water in it in verse 6 is not a literal fountain with literal water, but it's symbolic of eternal life, as the text just come out and says. The one who thirsts in verse 6 does not literally thirst from being literally parched. This is spiritual language. The lake of fire, I would argue, is not literally a lake of fire. That's a symbol to represent what eternal punishment will be like. The second death is not a literal death. It's not the separation of the body and spirit, as James 2 says. That's already occurred once. They've come back together, and the second death is symbolic of what is happening in eternal punishment. The seven bowls in verse 9 are not literally seven bowls. Going back to chapter 16 of Revelation, John was not literally carried away in verse 10, we don't believe. He wasn't literally standing on a literal high mountain in verse 10. The light of the holy Jerusalem is not literally precious stones in verse 11. The wall of the city with the 12 gates are not literal walls with literal 12 gates. That goes to 
the detail mentioned in verse 16 that the city is not literally 12,000 furlongs or stadia, depending on what translation you're reading there. That would be 1,500 miles in all directions, meaning the length of the wall would be 1,500 miles, the width of the wall would be, the wall would be 1,500 miles, and the height of the wall would be 1,500 miles. This is greatly exaggerated language to get across the protection of God's people in this eternal state. The wall and the city are not literally pure gold and clear glass simultaneously. The city does not literally have 12 foundations, verse 14. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are not literally a temple. The Lamb is not literally light, in verse 23. And the book of life, I would argue, is not a literal book, but representative of God knowing the names of the people that are saved. Now, it's interesting, there is an author named Steve Gregg who takes the refurbished earth's position, and he makes this point, even though he will interpret in verses 1 and 2 that the new heavens and new earth is literal, and it's, again, literally coming down out of heaven from God, he will say this um, in his book, uh, The Kingdom, The Empire of the Risen Sun. Where is it here? Here it is. He says, When it comes to the ideas of the next life, there is no reason to be thinking in terms of a place of literal pearly gates and streets of gold. He makes that statement in the same book that he will allude to, at least, the ideas of a refurbished earth and translate, or again, uh, interpreting verses 1 and 2 literally. Um, again, I would agree that we can't just be arbitrary about choosing which phrases in Revelation 21 are literal and which ones are figurative or symbolic. Um, all of this seems to be very figurative and symbolic. And going back to the origins of the phrase, which we will do in a little bit when we get to Isaiah 65 and 66, we'll learn that that's how Isaiah used it, was in a figurative, symbolic way. Okay, so that's what the first obstacle that you run up against when trying to get a refurbished earth out of Scripture when you approach Revelation 21, which is really starting last, because that is the last book in the Bible. But I start there because people will very typically go to those verses first. Um, they might also go quickly to 2 Peter 3, and that's where we'll go next. The next major obstacle is the language of 2 Peter 3. In 2 Peter 3, um, Peter describes the destruction of the earth, and there he uses a lot of fiery language, and I'm using that on purpose, that kind of punny. He uses very strong, fiery language to describe the destruction of the world, and the language that he uses is so destructive and is so fiery that it would be very difficult for me to get out of this the fact that it's not actually going to be annihilated. This earth is not actually going to be completely destroyed. Just actually, there's going to be parts of a char, I guess, that are left over, and God will recreate that into something new. Um, notice there are four different Greek words, and in the article, I have all the Strong's reference numbers listed if, if you want those and want to look them up. But let me just read the translations from the New King James of the fire language I'm talking about. The heavens and the oh, sorry, verse 7, 2 Peter 3. The heavens and the earth are reserved for fire. In verse 10, he says, The heavens will pass away. In verse 10, he says, The elements will melt with fervent heat. Verse 10 again, Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Verse 11, Since all these things will be dissolved. Verse 12, The heavens will be dissolved, being on fire. Verse 12, the elements will melt with fervent heat, he says again. Some of those sound like the same words, but they're not. Um, those come from four distinct Greek words, and I believe when you take all of those into consideration and just the tenor of what Peter's saying, he's saying that this 
or the earthly elements here that we live on now will be unknown in eternity because they're going to be completely destroyed. God's people will remain and they will experience eternal glory, but um, not, not these earthly elements. Now, I said I would give a little bit of extra from, from that, what was contained in my articles, and, and I'll do that now. In 2 Peter 3, I will give you what I believe he is saying when he does use the phrase new heavens and new earth. I want to read verses 10 through 13, because this is the section where, where Peter then gets into using this phrase. It says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the comfort, or rather the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Now I want to acknowledge that up to verse 13, which again, verse 13 is the one that says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Up to that verse, he does appeal to the physical earth that we know now. Um, in, as early as verse 10, the heavens and the earth will melt with fervent heat. He's talking about the physical elements of the earth there. I'm not denying that. He's saying that they will be completely destroyed. But when he then uses in verse 13 the phrase, new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, he is alluding to a phrase that is first found in Isaiah. And I know he's alluding to a phrase found in Isaiah because of several reasons, really. If you go back to verse 2 of the same chapter, Peter says the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. He's talking about the judgment of the world and he's alluding to things that were spoken before by prophets in the Old Testament. And when you see this phrase, which only appears in the Old Testament in Isaiah, and you see this peculiar phrase in 2 Peter 3, he's talking about Isaiah's phrase. He also says that uh, God's people were promised a new heavens and new earth prior to 2 Peter, uh, when he says in verse 3, he says, We, according to his promise, look for new heavens. What promise? The promise in the Old Testament. The promise from Isaiah. I just made reference to it just a second ago as well. You will only find this phrase in Isaiah 65 and 66 in the Old Testament, in the Holy Prophets. And then finally, um, there's another allusion to Isaiah's prophecy in when he says in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4, and, and this is going outside of 2 Peter 3, but in Revelation 21, verse 4, when John uses the exact same phrase that Peter does, he says that the former things have passed away. Well, that phrase, not just new heavens and new earth, but that phrase comes from Isaiah 65, verses 16 and 17. So the prophet John makes very clear allusion to two distinct phrases from the same chapter where this language comes from. No doubt when Peter uses that same phrase, he is also using stock language from Isaiah. And again, we'll get to Isaiah in just a minute, but when Isaiah uses that, he is not alluding to the physical earth or a physical earth. He's not alluding to a refurbished earth. It's clear from that context. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. But that's um, what I believe when Peter's using that, he's referring to at least the people of God, 2 Peter 3.13, 
but I believe the people of God in their glorified state would be the best way to capture what Peter is alluding to. And so when he says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He is talking about God's new creation, his people, uh, and the eternal glorified state that they will be in after these earthly elements are destroyed that Peter's talking about up to that point. There is nothing in the context in 2 Peter 3 that necessitates verse 13 being a reference to a new physical, literal earth. We have to let the context speak, and part of that context is where this phrase comes from in Isaiah's context. Now, before we get to Isaiah, I keep putting it off, let's look at the third major obstacle to a refurbished earth interpretation from Scripture, and that has to do with Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, the refurbished earth viewpoint has to make the word creation refer to the physical earth. And I said earlier that in this chapter, Paul does not use the phrase new heavens and new earth. He uses the phrase creation. And even though he doesn't use that phrase, I would agree that this is a helpful passage in talking about the new heavens and new earth subject. He is on theme, I believe. Paul is in Romans 8. I just disagree with the refurbished earth position when they interpret the creation to be the physical earth, or at least to include that. I don't believe Paul is talking specifically about the physical earth or even inclusive, anything that would include that. Now, there's a pretty good article by Wayne Jackson. Uh, it's called, Will Heaven Be on Earth? It's on the Christian Courier. It's footnoted in my article on four obstacles to a refurbished earth. So if you'd like that article, I would encourage you to read Wayne Jackson's article. He makes this breakdown of the word creation and how it's used in Scripture and what it can mean. I thought this was very, very helpful when I saw it. He says, Creation is employed of the material creation in some passages. One example he gives is in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. Um, this says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. There it seems to be. I think everybody would agree this is talking about the, the material creation. Jesus is the firstborn over all material creation. He could be talking there about creation, just specifically humanity, and that's the second way that the phrase is used. And Wayne Jackson alludes to Colossians 1, verse 23, for this usage. It says there, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. That's another way that creation is used, or the cognate creature. creature sorry. <laughs> and then there's also occasionally a special sense in which it's used of Christians, and he alludes to the famous 2 Corinthians 5.17 passage, which says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. There in verse 17, the new creation is obviously a reference to Christians. And this is a very important passage, by the way. I think 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17 is a very helpful, important passage when you compare the language there, especially with the language in Revelation 21 that's often cited for the new heavens and new earth. This passage is very helpful in understanding that this phrase of creation and this whole concept can and does in Scripture refer to simply Christians. Um, this is an imagery or an analogy describing Christians as God's new creation, as they were in the beginning, 
with Adam and Eve. So what the refurbished earth viewpoint has to do in Romans 8 is they have to insist on the creation that Paul speaks about, including the physical earth. So taking that first interpretation that at least includes material creation. And I believe that's problematic for several reasons. Um, One of them stands above the rest. And I think this is a very important question to ask when you're reading through Romans 8 verses 18 through 25. The question is, when Jesus died, who or what did he redeem? In Romans chapter 8, specifically in verse 23, he is talking about the redemption, quote, of our bodies. He's talking about the redemption of the creation, specifically the redemption of our bodies. And going back to the question, who or what did Jesus redeem when he died on the cross? It it takes my mind back to John 3.16, that famous passage, For God so loved the world, and when he says the world there, it is a different word, but it's all within the same concept and idea. The world is not the physical creation. God did not so love the physical creation that he gave his only begotten son, so that whosoever might believe in him might be saved to include the physical earth. The same idea in Romans 8, the physical earth is not receiving a redemption of its, quote, body. This here is very seemingly uh, an allusion to the creation that is a reference to Christians, specifically. Christians will receive the redemption of their body that Paul speaks of in Romans 8.23. Jesus did not die to redeem the physical earth. I believe that when people answer that question... And people will have qualms about answering that question. I've never heard anybody answer positively, yes, God, Jesus died to redeem the physical earth. I've had people say, oh, I don't know, maybe, that's interesting. But in so saying, they're, they obviously have qualms and reservations about saying that because they realize the implications of it. Jesus' blood was not shed to redeem the physical earth. I believe that's very irreverent at the very least to speak of Jesus' blood as being purchased or purchasing the physical earth. Well, um, the other thing in Romans chapter 8 that I believe is an obstacle and would would lend more toward the traditional view, the refurbished earth viewpoint includes the physical earth in the, in the descriptions that only make sense in Romans 8 if the creation is people, namely Christians. And I allude to verse 18 of this chapter. It says, The glory which shall be revealed in us. There is a personal collective pronoun, which obviously includes Christians that he's talking to, but those that would vie for a refurbished earth interpretation would say that includes the physical earth. Now, they have to say that the physical earth is being personified in this chapter. Understand that we as God's people and Christians, it's not personification to say that we're his creation. It would be personification speaking about material things as if they were human in nature, it would be personification to, sp- to include the earth in that personal pronoun, us. I don't believe any personification is being used in Romans 8. When he says the glory which shall be revealed in us, he's not including a personified earth. He is speaking to Christians exclusively and saying there will be glory revealed in Christians, God's new creation. When he says in verse 19, it's similar, he says that um, we're eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Is that including the earth? I don't believe so. 
if us in verse 18 is referring specifically to Christians, then those eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons of God sensically only reveal, uh, only alludes to the new creation that is Christians. In verse 21, he says, will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The glorious liberty of the children of God is not imparted to the physical earth. It's imparted to the children of God. The glorious liberty of the children of God is the redemption of the physical body. All these things do not make sense when applied to a physical earth. The third thing that I would say within Romans 8 that's an obstacle for a refurbished earth interpretation is the question about who subjected the creation to futility, as Romans 8 verse 20 says. The creation was subjected to futility. Now, not all people who interpret Romans 8 to be a reference, the creation to include the physical earth. Not everybody who holds that position makes this argument. The argument being that God has to, he has to refurbish the earth. He has to redeem the earth in order to show his victory over Satan who cursed the earth, the earth, sorry, in the first place. But that's getting the cart before the horse because Satan did not curse the earth. God cursed the earth. Notice what he says in verse 19 and 20. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. God subjected creation in hope. And I believe he's talking about creation there being Christians, but those that would hold the refurbished earth position would say that Satan subjected the physical earth in hope. No, he did not. Satan did not bring about the curses on the earth that would be pain and toil, pain and childbearing, and all those other things that are mentioned in Genesis 3, curses on Adam and Eve. God did that. God did that. And so God does not need to refurbish the earth, restore it to its original Edenic state in order to show his victory over Satan. And I agree with one preacher who shared with me the statement that the Bible shows God's beaten up on Satan pretty well as it is. So why would God need to refurbish the earth to prove his dominion over Satan? Again, not all people who hold this position will make that argument, but many do, especially in scholarly writings. They'll make that allusion. Now, those are the major obstacles to interpreting a refurbished earth from Romans 8. But what I'd like to do before I move on to Isaiah is I'd like to give you a short breakdown of what I believe Romans 8 is saying. So let me read the verses with you in flow. We'll stop and comment where I think it is helpful to make sense of some details. In verse 18 it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. If you look at the context leading up to this, especially in chapter 8, Paul is talking to Christians. He's talking about sufferings that they are going through in this life. And that's why he starts off talking about their sufferings. And it's not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. He'll come full circle in verse 23 about that glory. It's the redemption of our bodies. And in that time, we will not have suffering. He is appealing to humans, and it's a very odd interjection if he then does include the physical creation and the verses that follow, which he's not, I don't believe. But keep on going. For the earnest 
expectation of the creation, that is Christians, eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, also Christians. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Still Christians under consideration the whole time. Verse 22 now is a transition phrase. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Now here, when he says the whole creation, he could possibly be talking about the whole creation to include the physical creation. That's a possibility. I don't believe that's what it is. He could be talking about the whole creation to include Christians and non-Christian humanity. I don't believe he is. Or he could be talking about all Christians in contrast to what group he's about to refer to in verse 23. I believe that's what he's doing. Verse 22 again, For we know that the whole creation, Christians, all Christians, groan and labor with birth pains together until now. Verse 23, though, not only that, but we also. There's a we here, a collective we, that's in contrast to the whole creation of the previous verse. And I believe that he is doing the same thing he does in 1 Corinthians 2 when he uses this collective we to refer to himself and the apostles. Uh, John does this also in 1 John 4. He refers to the we there, and he doesn't specifically name the apostles as that group included in that personal collective pronoun, but it's very obvious from the context and the contrast that it's apostles as opposed to all Christians. So let's read it all together now. Not only that, but we also, the apostles, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown with ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And I believe here he is trying to find a point of relation to these Christians who are going through suffering. And these Christians might look to the apostles and think to themselves, the apostles just can't relate to us because they're inspired men of God, and they have miraculous power, and they have the first fruits of the Spirit, and they just have such a status and a, a knowledge of God through revelation that they can't relate to our sufferings. But they went through many sufferings, and Paul alluded to those in 2 Corinthians, and he's saying, listen, we can relate to you. Even we, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown, and we also look forward for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies, just like you. And so this point of relation helps these Christians in suffering through their sufferings. That, I believe, is what Paul is talking about, and that's the flow of the creation language, I believe, and who it's in reference to throughout that set of verses. Well, that was short, as short as I can make it, and I hope it made sense. If you have any more questions, um, you're welcome to reach out to me. Now, now is the time that we get to Isaiah 65 and 66. We have one last obstacle, and in this one, we will get into a little bit more of explaining Isaiah's original context. But the major obstacle here is that most people who hold a refurbisher viewpoint, they just neglect altogether Isaiah 65 and 66. And if they don't neglect it all together, they neglect the context of the chapters where they pull this phrase out of. Again, the phrase occurs in verse 17 of chapter 65 and verse 22 of chapter 66. This would be a helpful place to get the context of these chapters. It'd be a helpful place to go in and actually look at, physically, look at my article called What's New About the New Heavens and New Earth. Because our, there I lay out the structure of Isaiah. It's helpful to see that in outline form. I lay out a section comparison of the verses in those two chapters and show commonalities. 
from uh, one section to the other and how there's repeated concepts of new creation from the four sections in the chapter. And I show um, parallels and contrasts in those chapters. But basically what's going on is that Isaiah is contrasting the state of Israel in his day and the rebellion of Israel and the the pain and suffering that that had brought on the faithful remnant of God's people and God himself. And he's saying that in in the future, God's new creation, which is the people of God, he identifies that with the new heavens and the new earth, this new creation is going to have forgotten about the troubles that this generation in Isaiah's day has brought on the nation and the remnant. I know he's talking about the people of God itself when he says new heavens and new earth because of what he says in chapter 65 and verse 17. Notice there with me if you're listening, it says in verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into my mind, but be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. He continues, For behold, I create Jerusalem, a rejoicing, and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The thing that's created here, and the Hebrew parallelism helps us to understand what it is that's created. The thing that's created is the people of God. The people of God are created as a new creation. They're referred to as Jerusalem. This is also imagery that John alludes to in Revelation 21 when he calls the people of God the heavenly city Jerusalem, the bride adorned for her husband. And that's very clearly, and again, go back to Revelation 21, notice verse 2, and notice verse 9 and 10, that the new Jerusalem is not a city, it's not heaven itself, it is the people of God in its glorified state, in their glorified state. The parallelism here is that the new heavens, new earth is actually the people of God. Isaiah 65, 17 and 18. And the the former things that are going to be forgotten when this new heavens, new earth is created. Notice verse 16 says, Because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. For behold, I create a new heavens and new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. The former things that are forgotten, I've already spoken to. It's not the physical earth. It's not the old, corrupt, physical earth that we're living on now. In context of Isaiah, it is Israel uh, in its rebellious state. It's not a new creation anymore. It's fallen from that status. And God's going to create a new creation out of that nation, out of the lump, the remnant. And it will be glorified and in a state of glory to come in the future. To reinforce this interpretation, I agree with Edward J. Young's assessment of the new heavens and new earth in his commentary when he says, Heaven and earth are employed as figures to indicate a complete renovation or revolution in the existing course of affairs. With the advent of the Messiah, the blessing to be revealed will, in every sense, be so great that it can be described only as the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. I think that is right on. I will read this paragraph from my article, What's New About the New Heavens and New Earth. The ultimate takeaway from this contrast in Isaiah 65, verses 16 through 17, is this. The thing being done away with when the new heavens and new earth is created is not the old earthly elements, at least not in Isaiah 65 and verse 17. It's rebellious. It's the rebellious people of Israel and the troubles they have caused God and his faithful remnant. You might could say the troubles of sin 
will be done away with. And I believe that is correct. Of course, I wrote that, so (laughs) I believe it's correct. But anyways, uh, whenever then we get into 2 Peter 3, and he uses that phrase, that stock language from Isaiah in verse 13, and even in Revelation 21, and he uses that phrase in verse 1 of his prophecy, it can't, prophets don't take phrases from previous prophets and just infuse completely foreign meaning into them and and interpret them as something that they did not have any relative uh, connection to in the past. However, Isaiah was using this phrase in his prophecy, that is how Peter and John must be using the phrase in their prophecy. Now, they can elaborate on that, but when they do elaborate on it in the New Testament— it does not appear that they're bringing into that phrase and the meaning of that phrase the idea of a physical, literal new earth and a literal new heavens. It's always in the Scripture referring to God's people or the state of God's people uh, in in eternity, in their glorified phase. Now, um, I think it's important, and I don't think I've said this yet, I believe it's important to note that it's not just God's people. The new heavens and the new earth, the new creation, it's not just God's people. Uh, I believe that there is enough in Scripture that indicates it's more than that, but it's the state of God's people. So that would include His people and also uh, the state in which they are dwelling with God and all the aspects of their character uh, and their eternal nature. So I I don't know, that may not be that key of a distinction to make, but I think it is helpful Um, Some people, like Edward Young and others, will say that new heavens and new earth is a reference to the new economy or the new order of things in the future glory, um, as opposed to the old order of things on this earth. I think it's probably better just to say the state of God's people, because in Isaiah 65, clearly the reference is specifically, or at least primarily, on the people themselves, the New Jerusalem But uh, I'll stop rambling because a lot of you may not be interested in that. Anyway, just food for thought. And um, last I would say in Isaiah 65 and 66, specifically chapter 65, there's one more obstacle to overcome when you are interpreting it in context. And that is the fact that in that chapter, Isaiah speaks of death and old age still being present in the time that the new, new, new heavens and new earth come. He says in verse 20 that there will be old men in existence, and he says, quote, the child shall die 100 years old. Now, if people are taking this phrase from Isaiah, Peter included, and he's alluding to specifically the physical earthly elements renovated, then that would not make sense. Something, that, Of course, that event takes place at the end of time. That doesn't make sense. And you, it's very, very peculiar to take the symbols of death and old age to represent anything in the future heavenly existence or eternal existence. I think that's even more pronounced when you could contrast Isaiah 65 and those elements, old age and death, with what you don't see in Revelation 21 when John describes the new heavens and new earth, uh, the new Jerusalem, and there is absolutely no death in there. There is no tears, no crying. There's no pain, because all that's in the past. But in Isaiah 65... Verses 17 through 25, he is saying there is, at least in this phase of it that he's describing, old age and death. Now, it's not like it was in some way. It's a very difficult verse, but he does use these symbols 
Now, what this really does is it brings up more questions probably about Isaiah 65 and 66 and what Isaiah does mean uh, more than you had before, perhaps. And if you do have those questions, and maybe chiefly you're asking, well, when when is this new heavens and new earth coming then that Isaiah speaks about? If you have that question, I would direct you to my article, What's New About the New Heavens and New Earth? Go down to the part tying up loose ends, that heading, and start reading. Of course, I would encourage you to read the whole article. But anyways, there I'll address when this happens. And I believe, uh, to sum it up quickly, Isaiah introduces this new heavens, new earth language and concept, God's people in their glorified state. He describes them getting us to the onset and the kicking off of the messianic age, God's new creation. God's new creation begins at the Messianic age, and we see that truly so whenever Paul calls Christians currently the new creation of God in 2 Corinthians 5.17. The new creation is kicked off then, but it is consummated and brought to fullness at the end of that Messianic kingdom period when Jesus comes back again and begins to reign with his saints, the new heavens and the new earth being a reality at that point. So Isaiah gets us to the to the New Testament, to the church age, and then Peter and John will pick that same language up and get us to the resurrection age. And I believe that's what's happening and why you see those symbols of death and old age in Isaiah, and yet it's still during this time period of, quote-unquote, new heavens, new earth. Hopefully that made some sense to you. Well, that is my review of the refurbished earth position, four obstacles that I introduced in that article, and also an explanation of each of these chapters to some extent, at least a short one, Second Peter 3, Romans 8, Revelation 21, and Isaiah 65 and 66. Difficult subject, difficult verses. I'm not saying I know everything. Um, if you disagree with something or you have questions, reach out through email, the Facebook page, Instagram, whatever. Hope you find this content to be helpful. And again, I would encourage you to read those articles. And that's it. Thanks for listening to this episode. And tune back next time for another episode of the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast.